welcome back to Jurassic Park Minute. I am Kyle. I'm Brady. And today we're going to be talking about something that I, I guess it gets discussed about Jurassic Park, but we thought it didn't get enough praise. So we are here to talk all about the audio work on this film today. Now, when you think Jurassic Park, one of the things that probably sticks out to your head is uh, the, the it's one of the first films to really use CGI to great effect, right? This was the movie that really set the bar for what computer-generated imagery could be in a movie and what that could do for the theater-going experience. But it does rely on that age-old Hollywood tradition, and that is audio work, and it, it really... You know, I think a lot of this movie and what makes it work is the Foley work on the movie, the sound work, the soundtrack. But today we're going to be talking about the Foley work specifically and how it was used in dinosaurs and other sound effects in this movie. So, And we're able to kind of go into the history of sound effects and Foley work and the history of film, too. You know, it's funny about sound in film. It's it's half of the theater-going experience, yet you really don't think of it that way. You know, we tend to think that... Memory is something that's really visual, you know, not so much sound, but it's it's something that I don't think we put as much emphasis on. But yeah, it is half of that entire experience is not just, you know, the image on the screen, but the way the audio is relayed to you. And it's the one that I don't think is as uh, it's as of it's as sexy of a, of a topic to talk about. Well, I mean, not to talk about, but it actually is very interesting to talk about and to learn about. But when you're thinking about what you just got out of a movie that you might have gone to see, like, you know, the, the sound effects isn't something that really sticks with you until you hear it again it's nostalgic on a level that almost like uh for sense memory the same way as like smelling something have you ever been like maybe you're walking around the grocery store or something like that and then like someone walks by you and you smell their cologne or their perfume and it's like all you're like almost like transported back in time to some time that you had smelled that before yeah that's it's one of the most incredible sensations ever but keep going sorry it really is uh, one other uh, thing that does that is is audio. You know, you can hear something and it'll bring you back to a time. Uh, like, you know, who can forget the sound of a TIE fighter? You know, who can forget the hum of a lightsaber? Stuff like that, it really, it brings you in even more so than seeing something like that, you know? So it's really weird that it's half of the film-going experience, but it's the half we don't really talk about a lot. You know, all dialogue is audio. All, you know, background sound is audio. And if you want to know how important that is to the film-going experience, uh, if you've ever seen a movie that maybe just has an isolated dialogue track with no background sound at all, or maybe even like temp tracks that they put in before the movie is done, it is a jarring experience. It completely pulls you out to see somebody like maybe a couple of characters walking down the street and there's a busy New York street behind them and you just hear their dialogue. Or maybe you hear like some guy walks by and he reps, he like, uh, you know, crumples up like a hamburger wrapper and that sound effect is way too loud. Like all that stuff is so jarring. You know, it's funny. George Lucas actually said that 50% of of the film going experience is sound mm-hmm. it's audio yeah um which i definitely believe uh, in some cases more i as a as an editor i've actually found that you can you can fool the eye you know you can yeah. if there's like a some some pause between uh an actor or your subject kind of taking a little break between what he's trying to say you can morph those together and make it seem like he's going from one phrase right into the next but you cannot fool the ear you cannot do it and if if you can you got to be really good yeah I mean, and there's one of the one of the ways to figure out. I mean, like, and I hate to say this, it's a trapping of some independent film and some like student films is they put so much time into lighting and keying and you know shot photography and color correction, 
and they don't spend the same amount of time on audio. And it it's one of the most it it makes something look completely amateur. You could take like a a, a major studio yeah. film, and if it has bad sound work, you're just going to be like, what, what what why why is this not connecting with me? Uh, and you know what's really strange is whenever you're watching a scene in a movie, and there's say like uh, you're in a room, a group of people, mm-hmm. and there's the background noise of all of them talking. You can't have that going on set when you're recording because you need to pick up the actors right. uh, who are supposed to be speaking and them and them alone. A lot of the time, those people are just kind of mouthing out silence. Yeah. Uh, there's been a few instances where a director will actually want that natural audio. Um, I think in The Social Network, David Fincher, in a couple of moments, actually wanted the, the extras around to be talking so that his actors actually had to fight over that noise to talk. And it would be more natural and a little bit easier for them. Granted... That's a pain in the ass for the sound editors later. Yeah. But it, it makes the scene a little bit more real, can, a little bit more effective. Can you imagine having to go back and do ADR, additional dialogue recording, and you're listening to it with your Ooh. headphones, and there's like everybody chatting in the background, and you're trying to scream over that? Nope. So there's a couple other things, too, that you um, kind of tricks of the trade type things where, you know, a lot of times, like if you'll have people moving around the background or especially dancing uh, in a scene, like they're. They might be playing some music on set, but sometimes they're not. It's complete silence, and all the extras are told not to make any noise. And on top of that, they're usually dancing with their shoes off or on padded, a padded yeah. area because you have everybody talking, and there's this, like this loud clank of like shoes behind them, which is really weird. Another thing, too, um, as far as like directing scenes of extras go, uh, when you are doing that, you kind of, you have to tell everybody, like, look, don't talk. Just mouth out stuff. Let one person do it, and whatever you do, do not nod your head. Because if you've ever seen like a scene with bad directing, you'll notice like all the extras in the background, everybody's nodding their head. Because it's like an actual, it's like the first response you go to if you remove dialogue, is you want to start like sign languaging to the other person in a lot of ways. And one of those ways yeah. is just to kind of get, you know, I, yes, I understand what you're saying. It's just a head nodding, which uh, is pretty weird. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, on that tip, what we wanted to do today in talking about sound uh, and how it works with Jurassic Park, we both took three different sound effects from the movie that we wanted to talk about, gathered some notes on them, and we wanted to go back and forth here today and talk about why these sounds stood out to us. And I'm sure as you're listening to this, you're probably going to uh, kind of uh, agree with us that you know, or, or maybe understand where we're coming from on the fact that these sounds were sounds that are iconic to the film and really stuck out. So, but uh, yeah, Brady, since this is your idea, I'd like to ask you, what is your first sound of Jurassic Park? You know, kind of traditional, I guess, sort of an obvious choice, but one you definitely have to touch on is the Velociraptor. <laughs> So, I mean, the raptor is, it, it's supposed to stand out in the film. It's all the other dinosaurs are definitely threatening and they're each, you know, unique in their own beautiful way. But the raptors are their own character and they're not supposed to uh, have any sort of resemblance towards the other dinosaurs. They are threatening in their own way. So a lot of the dinosaurs in the film have sort of like a low, uh, you know, just growl to their voice and except for the uh, Dilophosaurus maybe. But the Velociraptors have a huge range of sounds that they make. And not just with their voice. They have the claws that they tap on the floor to try and, you know, whatever their reasoning is for doing that. But, uh, you know, you said earlier that the sound in the film isn't that sexy. You couldn't be more wrong because just about every sound, every animal sound that they use in this film was taken from the uh, animals that are actually made yeah. or in heat. So, but some of the combinations that they used for the raptor were tortoises mating. 
And that's whenever they're making, the Velociraptor is sort of making the call to whenever he's standing in the doorway of the kitchen to let the other raptor know where he is. And uh, Gary Ridstrom, who was the sound designer for the film, was at a place called Marine World. It's just gathering sounds, just gra- gathering, you know, anything he could find. And the employees there said, dude, you got to hear the tortoises mating. And he was like, uh, I don't know about that, man. I'm out of here. And they said, no, 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 come check it out. And so he, you know, the sound was very uh, interesting. So he was like, let me record this and I'll see if I can put it in somewhere. And I think it's one of the the most unnerving moments in the film whenever it comes to one of the dinosaurs, uh, you know, roar or whatever you want to call it. Um, because you, you don't know quite what he's doing that for. You know, he's obviously doing it for some reason, whether it's to call in another raptor, you know, back up or... If it's just him letting his prey know I'm here and I'm about to come get you or scare them out of hiding, whatever it is, it's very deliberate. So that is actually a tortoise mating. So whenever Muldoon is, you know, about to take fire at the raptor out in the jungle and then next thing you know, there's one right next to him. He says, clever girl. The sound that it makes is a goose hissing. If you get too close to a goose, sort of like a swan will do this as well. Uh, they're going to let you know they don't appreciate it. And they're going to give you this little hiss, which is them saying, you got about two seconds before I come at you. And uh, It's literally the scariest I, you know, thing in the animal kingdom. I would rather run across a bear in the woods than a swan coming dude, directly at me. It's like, for real. this is it. I got myself into the situation. Life is yeah. over. Yeah. Um, so here's what I find interesting. You know, one of the uh, biggest points that this movie makes is dinosaurs, uh, excuse me, birds are descendants of dinosaurs. They are dinosaurs themselves. But here is, you know, we have, okay, so we have a goose that is hissing at you hundreds of millions of years later, and, you know, hundreds of millions of years before, the ancestor of that bird was also using a hiss to scare you. So there's just little, this is according to the movie, and it's, and it's sound design. So these little bits of uh, things that are in the design logic of these creatures have carried over through evolution. Millions and millions of years, they're still there. They're still the same. That's just one more cool little thing that goes to uh, Grant's whole, you know, his, his primary point throughout the whole movie is they are one and the same, birds and dinosaurs. So the raptor also has uh, a horse somewhere in there in its sound design, which a lot of these do. And for the really high-pitched, like, squeal that it lets out whenever it charges for Lex in the kitchen, that's a dolphin. They actually uh, recorded dolphins underwater, and it's uh, one of the dolphins' many sounds that it does. And, you know, we think of dolphins as pretty, like, uh, I don't know, friendly animals and things that are sort of, like, fun to watch and observe. And yet, they took the sound of these things playing around and put it in... This scene, you know, in this moment where it's a, it's just, you know, charging at you and letting out this noise and it's the scariest thing you've ever heard. So it's so interesting how you can take a sound from one instance, put it in another instance and it means something totally different, but it's the same sound. Yeah. So that's what I've got on the Velociraptor. Well, one th- cool thing I want to add about the Velociraptor is not only did it have to have sounds that kind of fit what the animal was doing in the movie, but the Dilophosaurus, uh, excuse me, the Velociraptors also had language involved. They weren't just making sounds; they were using it to communicate with each other. So the sound of the turtle mating, uh, whenever he's kind of barking there in the doorway to get the attention, excuse me, she's barking there to get the attention of the other Velociraptor. Uh, you know, she kind of sits her her head back and starts doing that sound. That's the turtle mating and the mating call of the turtles uh and it's used as a way of talking so they had to 
get stuff that was, re, you know, that was like repetitive, that had uh, kind of like a meaning to it. So they weren't just there to get evocative noises that would scare the audience. They actually wanted it to be like the animals were communicating with each other, which I don't think any other animal in the film uh, would have that kind of noise. It was just the velociraptors that would do that. Yeah, definitely. So what you got? So the first animal that I wanted to talk about, and I kind of want to get back to this idea of design logic that you were talking about a second ago. Um, I wanted to go with the Dilophosaurus. The Dilophosaurus in the movie has two different uh, distinct sound moments that happen uh, for different reasons, but one of the things when I was referring to the design logic you were talking about is they went back to look for birds that made noises that they could match to, the, you know, they used some other stuff, but uh, that matched uh, kind of the idea of what they were going for the, with the uh, Dilophosaurus. So one of the animals that they went back to, specifically when the Dilophosaurus was in its uh, kind of like cute phase, I guess, before it actually eats Nidri, uh, they actually yeah. used the sound of a swan hooting. Now, this is interesting to me because the Dilophosaurus has these frills or, you know, the crests on top of its head. And the idea is that those would probably have been used to make some sort of noise, a communication or a mating call or something like that. So the sound designers actually found an animal that has something kind of like that. You know, swans have that uh, bill that goes back towards their eyes, and then they have kind of a little bit of a crest or a bump above their head. At least the males do. I'm not 100% sure if the females do or not. And they use that to hoot and communicate. Of course, when they hiss at you, when you get too close to them, you're like feeding them bread at the lakes or whatever. Uh, that is all done through the mouth, through the vocal cords, the hissing. But the hooting and all the other communicative noises do come from that little bump on top of their head. So they found an animal that not only fit what they wanted to for the Dilophosaurus to sound like, but they also found one with a apparatus built into its skull that would help make that noise. So I thought that was pretty interesting. So when it's hooting, uh, that's kind of a swan making a little cute kind of noise. And, you know, that's used to uh, kind of disarm Dennis Nidri and put the audience uh, in a fragile state for what comes after that. Uh, you know, Nidri finds it at first, and it's just kind of making these cute little, like, hooting noises and stuff like that, and looking around, at the, you know, cranes his neck back to look at the stick that he throws and everything, and it's you're like, oh, this isn't, you know, a very big or menacing dinosaur. And then in a second, it becomes a very menacing dinosaur. So whenever the, the Dilophosaurus throws out its frills, they actually use, and this is very obvious in the film, uh, they use the sound of a rattlesnake. So when it throws that frills open, we don't actually see what's produced that noise, but we hear the sound of the rattle going on, and we assume that that's the frills. But they also took the sound of uh, of a hawk whenever it snarls at Dennis Nidri before it spits venom at him. So whenever he throws out the frills and everything is like that, that is the sound of a hawk. And it's funny because I was kind of confused by that because it doesn't sound like a hawk to me at all. Uh, it's uh, it, well, and that's actually because they put some other stuff in there as well. It's a hawk and a howler monkey and an egret. But it's hard to tell which one of those pieces is there when you hear them all mashed up, you know? Uh, because yeah. they, they do a lot of like post-processing on that. They take this, those sounds, they mash them together. They might uh, pitch shift some of them or kind of like you know, reduce it to have like a lower volume to it. But uh, it's really weird because it's a distinct sound of kind of like an animal. It sounds like guttural, like it's coming from the throat. Like the thing is like snarling with its tongue and its throat at you. But uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't come across that it's a mashup of things. It sounds like a wholly original thing. So yeah, that, uh, I think that that is a very fitting 
sound, especially the hooting, you know, that it does before it gets to him because it, it, it has the effect of disarming the audience before it really jumps out and has, you know, the, the rattlesnake and everything. And I, I like the idea of them putting that rattle in there at all because the rattle, again, doesn't look like it's actually coming from the dinosaur's throat or its nose or like any sort of frill. or Right. I mean, right. not frill, but the crest or anything. But it's also a very primal sound. Like, everybody, I think, is born with the idea of if you hear the rattle, you need to get the hell out of there, you know, because it's... Yeah, especially babies with their baby rattlers. Exactly, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's one of those sounds, like, right now, if I were to go for a walk and I heard the rattle sound, uh, it's immediately... I don't even have to think about it. I would turn tail and haul ass out of there, you know? Uh, it's yeah. funny. One of the first memories that I have is there is a museum at uh, LSU... Uh, which is like a natural history museum. And they have like all these different, you know, like uh, still life animals you can go and there's like a lynx and stuff like that you look at. And there's a rattlesnake and there's a really mean trick they have. When you walk up to the rattlesnake, there's a pressure plate in front of it. When you get too close and step on that pressure plate, the rattle on the rattlesnake starts going from side to side. And I remember my father when I was young saying like, hey, Kyle, come take a look at this. And I got close to it and he stepped on that pressure plate and the thing, the rattle started going off and it scared the hell out of me. And it's something I'll never get out of my (laughs) head. But uh you know, dad jokes, but, um, yeah, there's something very visceral to see it whenever it starts snarling at you. That's an alien sound. This one's produced for the movie. It's not a real noise, but that rattle definitely adds a layer to it that really strikes some legitimate fear, I think, into, into the heart of the viewer watching it. But, um, little, little note here, and this has nothing to do with sound, but did you know that Dilophosaurus is actually predate mosquitoes? No kidding. Yeah, they do. So that's, uh, you know, we have great design logic in the way that they found birds that kind of even looked like the Dilophosaurus to get the sound of the audio, but uh, not great logic in the fact that they would not be able to pull blood out of one that was not able to be bitten by a uh, animal that was not around at the time. So, (laughs) but uh, yeah, so that's my, uh, my, my first sound in the movie is the sound of the Dilophosaurus. I think it's really a masterclass in uh, sound editing. So what's your next one? Before I hop well, before I hop into another one, it's I, I think the Dilophosaurus scene is probably the best scene in terms of uh, displaying a dinosaur in the film in the sense that they really do disarm you. And you're taken off guard because this thing is adorable whenever you first see it. And it's slowly you start to feel, OK, I'm supposed to be threatened right now. And then <clears throat> and then it just lets out those frills and it's just curtained up like you gotcha, you know? Yeah. And uh, it's a terrifying scene. And so much of that is all of those steps are done through the sound. You get from the hooting to something a little bit, a little bit more slowed down. And then, of course, the combination between Gary Ridstrom's sound design and Stan Winston's uh, puppetry is the fact that you see its uh, sides going in and out. And you can see the rib cage as it breathes. And you can actually hear the breath, too. So, you know, just so well done. The Dilophosaurus in the film. Everything about it. But uh, the next one that I have is not a dinosaur at all. It is actually the sound effects of Nidri's shaving cream can. The bottom screws open. <laughs> and unfortunately, I could not find anything that would have produced the sound, or like any of the combinations that they would have made for the sound. But there's something about it that if I were to ever hear it, you know, if I'm like walking through a room or something like that and hear that sound immediately, boom, Jurassic Park. It's one of the many uh, examples of sound design in this film that make it what it is. You know, and a, there's a lot of sound design in this film that aren't dinosaur related. And that can go from anything between uh, this shaving cream can to um, the sound of the computer whenever Lex is trying to navigate the Unix system at the end uh, to 
Nidri's computer, whenever he finally sets the uh, initiates the process of shutting down all the electricity in the park, tons of sound effects that are you know um, native to this film. And I think one of the best examples is the shaving cream can and all of the little sounds that it makes as you're opening it, as you're closing it back up. And then, of course, Nidri's uh, squeal, his reaction to it whenever Dodson first presents it to him. It's cool to compartmentalize inside. So anyway, it's a short one, but that's uh, my second one. So what do you got? Okay, so for the second dinosaur I wanted to talk about was the set, the... I guess it's not really the first dinosaur you hear in the movie because we do start off with the Velociraptor, but when you first see the Brachiosaurus for the first time, the sound it lets out is really, really iconic. When they first step out of the Jeep and they take a look at the Brachiosaur, it's it doesn't notice them. It's kind of moving on its own, and you kind of almost feel like you're staring through a window into another world, you know, back into the past. And the sound of the dinosaur that it's making, I think, perfectly fits kind of the emotion at the moment. It's, it's kind of like this pastoral moment of, like, awe and beauty. It's not a time when we're going to be hearing a dinosaur that's, you know, going to be really scary and frightening us. And it's not used to, to anything like that. It's, it's kind of like, you know, this awe-inspiring moment of this, like, perfect blend of fantastic computer-generated imagery. You know, the beautiful scene of the forest and everything behind them. And then the sound of the Brachiosaurus in its own element right there. So it's funny because... You know, we've been talking about the sounds they get for these things, and a lot of birds have been used at this point because, of course, you know, dinosaurs evolved into birds. But the Brachiosaur is one that is not a bird at all. And it's really funny because they ended up using uh, the sound of a donkey, if anything, to get the sound of a Brachiosaur. Yeah. This one, though, I know I said, like, with the hawk earlier, I couldn't hear the hawk. You know, I could kind of hear the maybe the howler monkey or the egret in the, Vol- in the Dilophosaurus. But with the Brachiosaur... I definitely feel like I can hear the donkey in it uh, because it sounds like they slowed it down and they pitch shifted it uh, to get the exact tone that they wanted. Kind of that uh, like almost like song like quality of what it's doing. Like I just picture a donkey when I think of donkeys. I just picture somebody trying to get this like, you know, a beast of burden to like, uh, you know, help plow a field. And the thing does not want to (laughs) work. And it's just like somebody pulling on a rope and the donkey just like sticking its head out, like not working and like, you know, doing that hee haw thing to him, you know? And, uh, but you can almost hear that. It's almost like when you first see the brachiosaur and it's making that noise, it's almost like they took that hee haw sound. And I really wish there was a name for it, maybe bleeding or something like that. That uh, bleating that it does. Uh, no, it's the, there is. Uh, Chris talked about it on Goonies Minute recently, and it was like a it's a, like a fascination of his is uh, something like that. Hey, keep keep going, keep going. I'll, I'll think. Okay, it's all right. Uh, but it's definitely um, it stands out against the rest of the growls and the roars and the screams that you hear dinosaurs doing because it's just uh, it is communicative to an effect. It does call to the other dinosaurs, but it's just kind of like almost just in the joy of the fact that it's eating off of this giant tree, you know? And the sound is definitely more like a, like just hearing a cow like moo in the field or something like that. But they the way they took it and put it in the moment, it definitely uh, is evocative of this feeling of like grandeur. Like look at the size of this beast. 
look at you know hear the sound it's making it's 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 a pretty amazing moment especially since it's the first dinosaur you see in full and the first exposure we get to these beasts in the film is this is this noise that's very different from everything else you'll hear it's a tone setting yeah. piece the way the dinosaur makes the noise really sets the tone for the next few minutes of grant collapsing on the ground and the glory of this beast you know but uh yes yeah. but that's it's funny because they actually we do get another sound of a brachiosaur later in the movie uh whenever it's sneezing uh you know lex gets covered in mucus and they you know the the brachiosaur makes that like a really loud noise and everybody has to grab their ears before that. Uh, but what they used for the sound of the dinosaur sneezing was actually a whale blowhole and a fire hydrant at the same time. God bless you! And it kind of has that, uh, you know, that sound of the explosion of fluid coming out, you know, which that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. A whale's blowhole probably sounds a lot like a, a brachiosaur sneezing from that little blowhole it has itself on the top of its skull. So. Or a fire hydrant. Or a well, fire hydrant, so. you know, on a hot New York summer day, splashing a bunch of kids with stuff. But <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, so that's mine. The brachiosaur, uh, th- th- I think the sound is interesting. I think the, the what the animal they chose to make the sound is interesting. But I think more than anything else, it's a tone setting piece. Uh, and that is actually going to come back to play in my honorable mentions later on. But uh, yeah, the brachiosaur, cool. when you first see it on screen, it definitely leaves a lasting impression. Everything about that moment, the Brachiosaurus introduction, is beautiful. It's a perfect moment in a film, and it's the filmmakers got it. Spielberg got exactly what he set out to do with everything from the music to the actors' uh, responses, and of course the sound design. I think the sound of the Brachiosaurus is, is beautiful. Uh, and who would have known? It's just a slowed down donkey. Yeah. So <laughs> let's see. I'm going to find out what that what that word is. It bleeding donkey or belting or. Something. I'm going to find out. I'm going to find out. Well, I'll tell you what. I'm going, to, I'm going to look it up while you do your next one. Let's see. My next is the, I mean, come on, it's kind of predictable, is the T-Rex. So the T-Rex, kind of like everything else in this movie, is made up of unpredictable animals. Some of them, however, you can totally hear and totally imagine in there, and one of which is an elephant. I mean, there's no way you can watch this without hearing the elephant. Whenever the T-Rex comes crashing down through the uh, skylight in the, in the tour vehicle, and it's the shot where the camera is in the car looking up. I mean, it's an elephant, unmistakable. Uh, and it's actually a mix of an el- uh, adult elephant and a baby elephant. Well, another one of the sounds in there is a Jack Russell Terrier. And this is uh, Gary Ridstrom, who is the sound designer in the film, his dog. And he said he wanted to include a dog because he saw a lot of dog characteristics characteristics in the T-Rex. Uh, take, for example, whenever it's about to eat Gennaro and it's standing in front of him and it's just kind of cocking his head side to side with curiosity. Whenever it comes out of the forest and bites the dying Gallimimus, um, it's sort of just playing with it, the way like a dog would play with a rope or something. So he wanted to include little things like that that would get across the idea that the T-Rex is very much like a dog. So some of the other sounds are alligator, an alligator gurgling, and a tiger snarl. Now, both of those sounds uh, are... we, We cannot hear with the human ear. The tiger sound is something... It's like an incredibly loud... Granted, we can't hear it. 
uh, rumble that it produces that can actually stun its prey the way that headlights would stun a raccoon or something. In fact, the sound of the alligator is one of the loudest sounds that any animal on Earth can produce, and it's doing this to attract a mate. But it uh, actually will vibrate the water in this inaudible sound, inaudible to humans. We can't hear it. So I think it's so funny that some of the combinations for the T-Rex sound is animals that we can't even hear. So, you know, okay, and the Tyrannosaurus Rex roar is unmistakable. I can hear it in my head right now. I can if I could not watch this movie for 30 years and still hear the sound. It, it kind of became like the default Tyrannosaurus Rex sound too. Like you can watch other media that has Tyrannosaurus Rex's Rex I, I don't know how both the plural is, but it seems like they must have licensed the sound of the Tyrannosaurus Rex because it is used in everything else. I mean, I, you wouldn't be able to recreate it. You know, you just have to go back to the well for this one because it set the standard as far as what dinosaur sounds sounded like. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, you can hear little bits and pieces of it. And, you know, uh, for people who have seen this movie as many times as the listeners of this show have, and you and I, if you hear the littlest snippet of it somewhere, boom, you got it. You'd know exactly what it is from like a half of a, like a millisecond of that sound effect. So that's just, um, you know, goes to the, the power of the sound design in this movie. You can hear somewhere just the smallest snippet of the sound and you can recognize it. You can pinpoint it because of just how effective it is. So for my last one, I wanted to pick something that was uh, kind of a combination of sounds here uh, that we hear. And it's not just the dinosaur, but also kind of the sound around them. Um, And it is the scene where Grant and the kids are running from a herd of gallimimus. So not only do we have the sound that the dinosaurs are making as they're running past them, but we also have the sound of the hooves that are going by. And if you've seen the Gallimimus foot, it's not a hoof. It's like a, uh, it's, it's basically a foot. It's like a bird foot, right? And they run almost like a pack of, uh, you would almost say, um, ostriches, you know, in the way they move. And it's a very well-realized scene. I think it might have been the first CG scene that they had like shot for the movie and completed. Uh, and because of that, we've seen a lot of footage of this stuff in its different various formats. So you see like Grant and the kids running around by themselves and then them with uh, dinosaur skeletons and then them with unpainted dinosaurs running by and then the final product. And in all those other shots, of course, there's no audio of the Gallimimus running by. And it's very stark, you know, when you just see this stuff running by with no audio. So we have the combination of the sound of them running by, which is actually a uh, herd of horses. Uh, so whenever they went out to record these horses, uh, they actually set up microphones. And uh, there was a female horse that was in heat. So a bunch of male horses ran up beside it and it startled her and she like reared back and made this like, you know, whinny or neigh or whatever. And they actually ended up using that in the movie a couple minutes later when the Tyrannosaurus Rex comes in and eats the Gallimimus. That is actually a female horse getting startled by a male horse uh, while she was in heat. So we kind of see the, you know, the the reoccurring themes here of, you know, like mating dolphins, tortoises mating, horses being in heat. But but I think That's that this... Right. Everybody's getting down, you know. <laughs> well, I, I think that this scene really works really well because it, uh, you know, the sa- again, the visceral sound of something like a rattlesnake with the Dilophosaurus. Again, we get the stampede of horses going by that, you know, it's it's unmistakable when you hear a bunch of like large, heavy animals coming by you. And it really adds to the fact that Grant and the kids could be trampled here at any moment, uh, you know, or attacked by this like these animals that are that are flocking their way. 
you know. So the Gallimimus, yeah. I think it's kind of an overlooked dinosaur in the movie. It doesn't really, you know, they just kind of are there for that one scene, and uh, it's a pretty cool action scene. But we don't really think about the fact that uh, you know this is a these are a lot of animals, a lot of heavy animals running by that could do a lot of harm to these people. So yeah, sound of a horse in not just the stampede, but also the sound that the uh, female Gallimimus makes. Here's a, a thought on that. There, um, sometimes you'll be just outside, out in nature, and you'll hear one of the animals that they've used uh, in the film. Uh, and, you know, so, okay, we, we have a herd of horses running right here. You're familiar with River Road here in Baton Rouge, where we live, yes. which is up, yeah, exactly. It's out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, one night I was with some friends riding our bike, and you, I mean, it's rural, man. You can't see anything out there. And then all of a sudden we heard the sound of thunder like right next to us. And we look over in the levee and you see some movement kind of in the darkness. And it was a big herd of bull. And they were running like alongside us. I guess we had startled them or something. And the only thing between us and them was a little like, you know, mesh fence or something to keep them from the road. And if those things were startled enough and angry enough, they would have come right through that and gotten us. So the sound of that thunder I can I can hear it whenever I watch this scene in the movie, mm-hmm. and I can know just how scary and just how intimidating that sound is, man. It's, you know, they're going to run right over you if they want. And I love the fact that they're so just, you know, oblivious to Grant and the kids being there. They're just, they're in their territory, and they're just doing their thing, and they're running by. Then, of course, they're going to find out someone else is in their territory, and uh, yeah. it does not end well for everybody. Yeah. No, not at all. So I tell you what, if that's uh, our three for both of us, we've got some honorable mentions. Uh, however, before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about Gary Ridstrom, who is the sound designer for Jurassic yeah. Park. So Gary Ridstrom was born in Chicago in 1959 and graduated from University of Southern California School of Cinematic Arts in 1981. And he started working at Skywalker Sound in 1983 under the mentorship of Ben Burt. Now, Ben Burt, I'm sure everybody who's listening knows who that is. That is just a legend in sound design. He's the guy who did all the sounds for Star Wars, for Indiana Jones, for so many different movies. And if you're gonna, you know, mentor under anybody and it's him, you just you're you're gonna walk away with some serious ability and knowledge that you can implement into movies like Jurassic Park. So um, but Gary Richardson has actually performed such tasks uh, as sound designer, as sound mixer, Foley artist, ADR director, voice director, and sound consultant, which he actually did recently on Jurassic World. So the first movie he was uh, doing sound design in was Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom as an audio technician. And he, you know, eventually worked his way up to being sound designer. And he was actually eventually sound designer for the movie Backdraft, which earned him an Oscar nomination. And it, that movie really set the stage for sound design in action movies. A lot of the design work that they created for that movie is still used today. And you can actually still hear some of his sound design pieces in movies today. And, you know, I mentioned that he was a Foley artist. Uh, you know, I want to get into Foley later in the show. But uh, there's a really cool example that comes to mind when I hear the word Foley, and that is the Balrog and Fellowship of the Ring yeah. and the sound of its roar. Yeah, the sound of its roar is a cinder block being dragged along concrete in a hallway, long hallway, so they got that echo. For some reason, so, I knew that because it's so it sounds like concrete smashing against concrete and dragging, but it was yeah. such an, a, a different uh, beast for a film that they had to choose something that was you know like nothing else you exactly. heard before. Yeah. For Jurassic Park, he mixed uh, dinosaur sounds in a new way, which was a new type of surround sound. And Jurassic Park was the first movie to use DTS, 
Uh, Steven Spielberg was one of DTS's initial investors and believed that sound design just it wasn't up to par at that at that time, and it really had to be more or less reborn for Jurassic Park. There was no way that he could release Jurassic Park uh, in the way that it had been before. They had to break new ground, and that's what they did. And I can remember going to see this for the first time, and my hands were over my ears the entire movie. And I remember hearing this movie from all around. You weren't just hearing it from, you know, one or two spots throughout the theater in front of you. This, these things were behind you. They were on the side of you. They were on top of you. It was crazy. I'd never experienced anything like it. Well, that was uh, Gary Ridstrom's, you know, ability to sort of, like I said, give, you know, give birth to a new era in sound design. So Gary Ridstrom has he's really gone on to kind of redefine sound design in film and pave the way for you know future breakthroughs. Uh, when he's not working in movies, he regularly speaks at various sound design forums and shares his extensive knowledge and enthusiasm with uh, aspiring you know film sound designers. So he really gives back. Um, he's been nominated for eighteen Oscars, has won seven, he's won five Golden Reel Awards, two BAFTA Awards, and he won the MPSE. Lifetime Achievement Award. Uh, so I want to give you a little rundown of his filmography here, so get ready. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, Captain EO, which broke all kinds of ground, Willow, Backdraft, Terminator 2, Jurassic Park, Toy Story, Mission Impossible, Titanic, A Bug's Life, Saving Private Ryan, Star Wars The Phantom Menace, Monsters, Inc., Finding Nemo, The Hulk, uh, Peter Pan, Super 8, and The Adventures of Tintin, Wreck-It Ralph, and The Force Awakens. That is just a few to name. Wow. So he, yeah, not only has he literally redefined sound design and film, you know, he's just, you know, been a part of some of the greatest films of all time. And so, you know, that's, that's just a background into Gary Ridstrom's biography. There's numerous Jurassic Park uh, making of documentaries out there, including one that was on the Blu-ray release just a few years ago, where he gives all kinds of information on the process. There was one that came out around the time of the movie that you can easily find on YouTube and it's just really cool to, to see this guy and see how he thinks and where he's coming from when it comes to his craft. So, uh, tell you what, with that said, you want to get into honorable mentions? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I want to talk about one real quick, and uh, it's it's this overall, I guess, the sound completely in this scene. And that is the scene of the birth of the baby raptor. So I think we talked about this when we talked about this, the minute that this was involved in uh, whenever that was on the show, the, whenever the baby raptor is born, it's a very creepy minute. Uh, it's a very creepy sequence with this, yeah. with this baby uh, hatching out of the egg. It, um, the music is very strange. It's unlike anything else in the movie. It's like kind of like coral and very soft. Uh, we've got John Hammond kind of coaching that raptor to come out of its egg. And when it does, it looks like a vicious little animal, but it's making all these adorable sounds. You know, he's holding it and, you know, canoodling and cuddling it and stuff like that. And then uh, Sam Neill takes it and holds it and strokes it. And it looks like this very innocent little animal. Uh, and then we smash cut to the sound of the velociraptor screeching, you know, after he it's confirmed to Grant that it's a, that there were in fact breeding raptors. Well, that baby raptor, one of the, parts of this whole sequence uh, that makes it stand out to me is is the audio that it's making. And they used a lot of different uh, baby animal sounds for that, specifically a baby owl. Now, I spent about 30 minutes listening to different owl sounds on YouTube and could not find the exact baby owl that they used for this. And I'm sure they did some post-production on it to kind of like stretch it out and stuff. But I don't think it's a barred owl. Uh, 
that is making the noise, which is a common one here in North America. Uh, where you and I live, you and I don't live too far away from each other. There's a lot of owls in the area, specifically in my neighborhood. It's a very kind of like foresty area. And if I go for a walk late at night, uh, I can hear a lot of owls hooting at each other. And occasionally you do hear baby owls and they do have kind of like otherworldly screeching type sounds. But the sound that they chose to use here is a little bit more cute. Uh, it does a lot to set the audience up for the gag of the raptor screeching in a moment. So what it does is it kind of undercuts your fears. It's a scary looking little animal. You see it's born with teeth and claws and it has these big yellow eyes looking at you. And it's making these little like cooing noises. And then we smash cut to the sound of a raptor screeching. So, um, But yeah, I like the sound the baby raptor makes. I think it's creepy. I think it's weird. And it works as a great gag to surprise the audience when they smash cut to the raptor pen after that. So. Yeah. And like you said, we live in an area where there's like you, you live in a jungle pretty much. There's like coyotes in your neighborhood and I'm sure there's a silverback gorilla in there somewhere, but, uh, bats, all sorts of stuff. Yeah. But like I was saying, sometimes you hear the animals that they use for this movie. And I can remember walking around our backyard as a kid and hearing that sound of that owl. So, and I always just assumed it was some bird. I never thought owl. So I guess that just goes to show that we had, you know, (laughs) Big owl population in our yard for a long time. Oh, yeah. So for one of my honorable mentions is Triceratops. Triceratops is really interesting because it's one of the only... In fact, I think it is the only dinosaur in the movie that actually has human sounds in it. Uh, so one of the animals that they used was a cow, but for the breathing of the Triceratops, it's actually Gary Rydstrom breathing into a cardboard tube, like a shipping tube, uh, that had a spring running through it. And so this just kind of created this strange, like, heaving sound. And whenever Grant is leaning over, listening to the animal while it's breathing up and down, that is actually a cardboard tube with a spring in it. So really? <laughs> it's just one of those strange things. Yeah, you just, you play around, you find stuff, and you're like, hey, this works. Yeah. It seems like that would be the the Foley artist's job would be the most fun job on a movie set. You're not actually on the set working with everybody every day, but they come in and they're like, I don't know, man, make this work. And you and your buddies go into a warehouse and you just screw around with stuff all day until you find something and then you tweak it and you improve it. It just seems like uh, an endless adventure in just coming up with stuff, you know? So I've got another uh, and it's my last one. And, you know, I had the shaving cream can earlier. Well, I wanted to include something else that wasn't animal related, and that is the electric fence alarm. We've seen the electric fence play such a part, a big part in this film. They're constantly showing you this fence and the signs that say 10,000 volts, keep away. You know, they're constantly reminding us, don't mess with this. This is one of the antagonists in this movie is the fence. So you always get this kind of low hum whenever the camera's uh, supposed to be close to it. And so later when Tim is climbing down the fence, Ellie's trying to throw the power back on. She, one of the ones that she initially activates is something that's going to trigger that alarm sound. And there's just that repetitive, uh, annoying sound. It's it's similar to uh, an alarm, say an alien, whenever the ship is about to detonate. And there's other examples too that aren't coming to mind right now. But this is just one of those examples of something that is so threatening it's a countdown idea and it's just it's just annoying to hear but uh that is the last honorable mention that i have so i kind of want to get into the idea of 
paleontologists are, they're able to determine how dinosaurs walked, what they ate, if they had uh, traveled in packs, if they had feathers or not. And, but the only thing that they can't and probably won't ever be able to determine is what they sounded like. You know, whenever we had Crystal Beth on back towards the beginning of Jurassic Park Minute, she made the joke that uh, they prob- they could very well have just sounded like giant birds squawking like we hear outside right now and not these incredibly loud, threatening animals that we see in the movie. Uh, one of the things that I really liked about Jurassic Park 3 was whenever they had sort of mocked up the part of a velociraptor that would have produced its call. And Billy, the character, starts breathing through it. And, of course, it takes Grant back through his PTSD. He's sort of taken back to this horrible memory of what these things sounded like. So I thought that was really cool how that played a part in that movie. That was um, one of the things I enjoyed most about Jurassic Park 3, actually. But that is about all I've got for today's Patreon episode. Yeah, that's about all I have as well for this episode. And I think this was a lot of fun talking about sounds uh, from the movie. Again, not something that really is the first thing that springs to your mind when you're watching a film. But, you know, where would we be without some of the, you know, great sound work that's been done in the in the 20th and 21st centuries? You know, we wouldn't have those uh, things that stick out in our minds, like the sound of a blaster from Star Wars, the sound of Tyrannosaurus Rex growling at you. You know, it's the, the, the Foley artists are the unsung heroes of the film making world so all right well we are going to get out of here everybody have a wonderful weekend i'm kyle i'm brady and once again mahalo this has been a pele media patreon episode thank you so much for being a patreon supporter and keeping the show going if you enjoy our bonus episodes be sure to tell your friends to check us out at patreon.com slash media you can also find us online at facebook.com slash media and Media group at gmail.com. Our theme song is Behind Closed Doors by Otis McDonald. Mm-hmm.